Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, be the pivotal verse that we're looking at today. Do I have sound? Good. Okay. And before we look at this passage of Scripture, I would like to reflect with you a moment upon the psalm which was read to begin our time of worship, Psalm 143. And what we find in that is that the author David was obviously in distress. He was stressed in his soul and in his spirit. He declares that. And he says, teach me to do your will, O God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, revive my soul. Revival is something that we often talk about in our church and in evangelical circles. I remember hearing a great man of God, his name was Vance Havner. He's long since gone to be with the Lord. He was in his 80s speaking to a convocation of probably four or 500 people in Glorieta, New Mexico. And he said, as he was talking on the matter of revival, he had dedicated his whole life to call the church of Jesus Christ to revival. He said, what we need is not revival, he said, we need vival. And what he meant was, we need life to begin with. And some of our efforts to stir people to be revived are related to a lack of life, period. And we know that Jesus is the life. We also know that among the names which the Holy Spirit gives himself in the Bible, he calls himself the spirit of life. He is the one who produces real life. The Holy Spirit himself is. Revival is God's spirit using God's word to conform God's people to God's will for God's glory. The ultimate goal is that God be glorified. And the means whereby the Holy Spirit uses is his word. And as we turn to the Word of God today. We're interested, I am at least, and I think you would be too, in finding out how we can contribute to the movement of the Spirit of God in this church and in the world. And the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, it says very simply, do not quench the Spirit. The more precise translation of this command is stop quenching the Holy Spirit. The word quenching was used outside the New Testament to describe the extinguishing of a fire. And we know in the Bible, often the Holy Spirit is represented, symbolized by fire. The greatest revival that was ever seen in the history of the church occurred on the day of its beginning in Jerusalem. It began in an upper room. 120 people had been praying to the Lord, calling out to the Lord for days. And all of a sudden there was this mighty rushing wind 
And then as the people looked over each other's heads, they could not see it over their own heads, but there were tongues as of fire over them. The Holy Spirit was revealing himself in that situation. And the Holy Spirit is represented by fire. Stop putting out the Spirit's fire. This fledgling church, it was a young church. Paul and his traveling companions had spent just a little while there compared to the other churches that God used Paul and his companions to start. And while he was there, they grew rapidly. They had received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Christ had sent the Spirit to indwell them. Their bodies had become temples of the Holy Spirit. Let's pause just a moment and consider who Holy Spirit is. Many people think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force. Believe He is a great power. He is a great power because He is God. He's not a facsimile of God. He is God of very God. We read from Acts 5 this very sobering treatment of a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit of God. And in that passage of Scripture, when Ananias is confronted, he was asked, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And in the next verse, he is asked, why did you lie to God? There we have it. Holy Spirit is God. Just as surely as the Father is God, and as surely as Jesus, the Son of God, is God, the God-man, the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, He too is God. When Jesus was getting His apostles ready for His departure, it was a sad moment for the apostles. And He sensed that. It was not hard to figure out. He could see it in their faces. He sensed it in their quietness as he talked about his departure. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you ever. That is the spirit of truth. The word that Jesus chooses to describe this helper, another helper, it seems like such an incidental and innocent word, but it's chock full of information for us in our effort to understand who is Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, based on what Jesus says there, is just like Jesus. Two words were at Jesus' disposal, which he could have chosen to describe the helper as another helper. One would be a helper of a different kind. Heteros is that word. You can hear heterosexual and other words which come from that. Heteros. The word which he chooses is alos, which means another of the same kind. Jesus was saying, I'm going to ask the Father, I'm leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm asking the Father to give you another helper just like me. And that other helper is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. How do we keep from putting out the Spirit's fire? I don't know about you. I think I could speak for most of you. I would not want to be a person who extinguishes the fire of the Holy Spirit. And we give, are given great instruction, very excellent instruction, beginning with verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 5, as to how 
we cannot be party to putting out the fire of the Spirit. The first thing we are taught in this passage of Scripture is if we're to avoid quenching the Holy Spirit, we must encourage one another. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another. And by the way, the word translated encourage, listen to it. I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge of Greek. It's not that extensive. But this is what the word sounds like, parakaleo. It's a compound word to call alongside someone, the idea of calling alongside. The word which Jesus chooses in the upper room discourse, chapters 14, 15, 16, to describe the Holy Spirit translated by the New American Standard and well so, I might add, as our helper, that word sounds like this. Listen to it, parakletos. You see the similarity? The noun helper, parakletos, is derived from the verb parakaleo. So we see the Holy Spirit is the great encourager. The encouragement ministry is incredibly important to the church of Jesus Christ. This matter of encouraging, we know, and the gift of encouragement is a spiritual gift, but it's not limited to people who have the spiritual gift of encouragement. This is incumbent upon all of us who know Jesus. And we're not left to our own devices to understand how to do it. Because the one who is the best encourager of all times indwells us by the Holy Spirit who himself is an encourager. And we have this great opportunity to encourage each other. There's more than one person. I don't know who these people are. But there's more than one person who came here today desperately in need of encouragement. You may have identified with the reading from Psalm 143 where David talks about his own condition. And in that description of himself, he talks about how his life has been crushed to the ground. That's imagery that is very communicative, isn't it? Crushed to the ground. And his heart was appalled within him. And other things he says about his soul and those kinds of things. Some of you are here in that kind of condition. We all have the responsibility. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. If we're going to keep the fire of the Spirit burning, we're going to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We're going to encourage one another. How frequently are, to we, are we to encourage each other? The writer of Hebrews says, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that your hearts may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's important that we gather as a large group once a week, but we need to look for opportunity to encourage each other throughout the week. If you don't live alone, and you live with others who know Jesus Christ, you can encourage them. And even if they don't know Jesus, you can encourage them. Someone has said, the church is a place where seldom is heard an encouraging word. It's a place where people come and they're thinking about themselves and they're not really thinking about those who are worshiping Him with them. But all of us have that capacity. If we know Jesus Christ, and we are to exercise that capacity. 
to the glory of God and to the building up of the body of Christ, which leads to the next observation. Another factor in our avoiding extinguishing the Spirit's fire is building one another up. And these two ideas of encouraging one another and building one another up actually are like two sides of the same coin. In Ephesians 4.29, we read this. Do not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Let me stop there. The word unwholesome was used outside the New Testament to describe rotting fish. Have you ever smelled rotting fish? Makes you want to throw up, doesn't it? When you even think of it. Don't let any stinking speech come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their need. We need to know each other in order to build each other up, don't we? I need to know something about you. Sometimes I can detect rather quickly about a person's need in this area, but normally I have to get to know people. We have to get to know people. In the near future, we're going to offer the opportunity for all who come to this church to have an opportunity to be part of a community group, as we're calling them. And that would be meeting with a group of people, a small group, 12 to 16 or 18 people in a home or another neutral place and building each other up around the Word of God. Remember, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Where does ultimate encouragement come from? It comes from the Word of God. And we who know the Lord have access to the Word and we can receive the Word from the Lord. And I was telling someone, I can't remember who it was this last week, that the Lord never teaches us as followers of Jesus something that's designed to help encourage us without His having in mind that we're going to meet other people that He wants to encourage through us with similar words. God has given us this ministry of encouragement and building one another up. In the book of Ephesians, again, in the fourth chapter, the Bible talks about how Christ has given some the gift of apostleship, some the gift of prophecy, some the gift of evangelism, others he's given the gift of pastor and teacher so that through these gifts of Christ to the church, the body may be built up and do the work of the ministry. Do you know in whose hands the work of the ministry of Christ is primarily to be concentrated? Not in a, the hands of a person like me. I have a role to play. My role is to open the Word of God and teach the truth of God's Word with the hope and the expectation that the proper dividing and explaining and ap applying the Word of God to people to whom I teach or with whom I meet, that will be used by God. But the ultimate goal is that all of us get equipped to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the church. Here's the third thing, honoring our spiritual leaders. Often when I come to this, I think, I'm not going to talk about this. I haven't talked about this passage of Scripture maybe ever in the church. I can't remember for sure. But in Hebrews, there's another passage, but look at it. But we request of you, brothers, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And the word appreciate literally 
is the word, no. Gnosko is the word. And have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, we're not talking about hero worship here. What we're talking about is following the leadership that God has placed over us in the context of the local church. If you'll turn to Hebrews for just a moment, I want you to see with your own eyes, not just hear with your ears, what I'm reading. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, listen to what God says to the Hebrew Christians. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. The Bible tells us why it's very important to follow the leaders and then why the leaders are not to lord it over the body. First Peter chapter five talks about this regarding elders, pastors and overseers, bishops, whatever you want to call those people. And it says that we, all of us are to take stock of our own lives. And this is what the Bible says about your leaders. Me, Pastor Sam, Elder Jesus, all the leaders in our church. The Bible says not many of you should become teachers because you, if you become a teacher, will incur a stricter judgment. If I play fast and loose with the Word of God and do not spend time praying over what I'm going to teach, asking the Lord to teach me so I can deliver a proper explanation for the Word so that the body, if when the body hears it, then I'm in grave danger, a stricter judgment. That's sobering for me as a pastor of the church. We're to honor our spiritual leaders. If we don't, what the scripture says, we will put out the Spirit's fire. Look at the next thing in this statement in verse 13. Live in peace with one another. Among the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. And the word which is used by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.22, when he lists those attributes of the Spirit, and he uses the word patience, it's a word which means long-suffering. The King James Version explains it well in adopting that translation. It's a word which sounds like this, macrothumia. Macro, we know what that means. It means large, doesn't it? Elongated, in this case, long-suffering. The last part, as you would guess, thumia means suffering. We who know Jesus have His Spirit living in us. In Romans 8 9, Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, Christ does not live in you. You don't have Jesus. The Holy Spirit is sent by, from the Father at the bequest, the request rather of Jesus. And the Spirit comes, He indwells us. That Spirit lives in us. And that Spirit is one who is very, very concerned that peace be kept in the church. Let me give you a few examples of this from the Bible. In the book of Psalm 133, 
a Psalm of David says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil coming down over the head of Aaron and coming down on his beard and then going all the way down to the bottom of his priestly garment. That's a picture of anointing of the Holy Spirit of Aaron. What role did Aaron play in Scripture? Do you remember? He was the high priest of Israel. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tempted in every way as we have yet without sin. Do you know his name? Jesus Christ is our high priest. Aaron lived in a body just like you and I live in a body. When Jesus was walking on the face of the earth, he had a body. He didn't just look like he had a body. If we had reached out and touched him, and the apostles did just that, and in John's apologetic for the physical being of Christ, read the first four verses of 1 John. We touched him. We saw him. We embraced him. We knew him. Jesus has a body now on earth. Are you aware of that? What is the body of Christ on earth now? It's the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the Spirit wants to anoint the church with the Spirit of God Himself in order that we can be a right representation of Jesus to the world. And that requires unity, doesn't it? When Paul speaks about this matter in Ephesians 4, verse 3, he writes these words, Make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This means live in peace with one another in your home. If you're a believer, you are a spouse. Your spouse is there. You're to live in peace with him or her. This does not mean there won't be conflict, but it does mean that that which causes conflict will be addressed according to the way the Lord would have it to be addressed. Take a look at yourself and ask the Lord, Lord, have I contributed to this disruption in my family? And Lord, I want to ask you to help me to quit being that way, whatever that way, or doing that thing. And Lord, I want to humble myself and tell my spouse, I'm sorry, honey, that I did that. I'm sorry I've had this attitude. And if I've been offended, I need to let go of it. Remembering what Jesus says, if I do not forgive the person who has offended me, he won't even hear my prayers. I want my prayers to be heard. I don't know about you. Therefore, I need to live at peace with all men, especially in my home, in the church. Think about the fights you observed and been a part of maybe in the church. It is a shame for you or me to engage in such behavior. It is sinful because it disrupts the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here's the next thing in this listing of things we need to avoid to keep from putting out the Spirit's fire. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly. Let me interpret that little phrase, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. We don't use the word admonish. 
I don't anyway, in daily conversation. It really means warn. And the word unruly really would be better translated undisciplined. There's some people who are off the rails in the church. And it's because they have not been, in most cases, not always, but in most cases, not properly instructed in the things of the Lord. Our failure in disciple-making is the reason there is immaturity in most people's lives in the church. Everybody begins at the same point. Everybody becomes a Christian as an infant. It's nothing wrong with being a baby, but if you've been a Christian for three or four years, you are still a baby. There is a serious problem. And it could relate to the failure on the members of the church to take personal interest in helping you to grow and become disciplined. Here again, I hearken back to the description of the fruit of the Spirit. The last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Some of the translations would translate that as being self-discipline. A man without self-control, the writer of Proverbs says, is like a city broken into and left without walls. That paints a picture, doesn't it? What would happen to a city in antiquity if it were broken into by an enemy? The inhabitants were either dead or enslaved. Many people, maybe even here today, are enslaved due to a lack of self-control or discipline. Here again, understand who you are. If you know Jesus, if you know Him, His Spirit lives in you. He's waiting for you to yield yourself, not just sort of, but all of you to Him. And then what He does, He creates His nature, His character in you, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, or self-discipline. So we're to warn people. We're to step out and care enough about them to say, brother, sister, have you thought about how your life is going, I want to humbly come and speak to you about that in hopes that you will begin to grow in the area that you're struggling in. Look at the next statement. It's repetitive in a way, encourage, and the idea is keep on encouraging the faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted occurs only one time, not the English word, but the word from which this word faint-hearted comes, the translation of the word, and it's a compound word. The prefix is a word which means small or little. The main word is the word sukos, from which the word soul comes, and it means that in Greek, small soul. This is very closely connected to what I just mentioned. There are many people in our church probably who are small-souled, and that's not a criticism. It's a reality. And we need to encourage our brothers and sisters to grow in the Lord. We as pastors, we as elders, we want to help you to get past being small-souled and to grow into a soul that is working in the power of the Spirit and is being used by God to help others who are where you are now to move forward spiritually. Like newborn babes, the Bible says, crave the pure milk of the Word. The Word of God has been given to us so we can feed on it and we who are more mature 
we have a responsibility to teach those babies so they can grow and they can in turn begin to bear fruit and help people who are just entering into the faith to grow. Here's the next thing. After encouraging the faint-hearted, it says, help the weak. The word weak that is used here is never used. There is a word in the New Testament language which is used to describe moral weakness, spiritual weakness. This word is never used to describe those two kinds of weaknesses. It's used to describe physical weakness. Now, we can look around, look around. Come in here a little early someday and just wait for people to come in. You know, you can start greeting people when they come in. Say, I'm Mike Woods. I'm glad you're here. May I have your name? And if I can't think it, like today I, was, I met a couple who came in and I met a family of about six people come in. And I asked for all their names and then I went back and tried to call their names. And I had to ask a second time in both cases. But that's nothing to be embarrassed about. The thing that you should be embarrassed about and I should be embarrassed is I don't even ask their names, period. Because I'm afraid I've met them all before. I meet the same people about 18 times before I get it down. People say, you've got a good memory. Well, it's not as good as it once was. And I'm not ashamed to admit it. I want to know who people are, not because I'm the pastor. It's a big part of it. But I want to know so I can minister to them. And it's not because I'm a pastor. Every one of us in this room is called to encourage the faint-hearted. Are we not? Or am I making this up? This is what the Bible says, isn't it? And we don't want to put out the Spirit's fire. We can't know everybody here in a church this large, but we can know some people here, can't we? We're to help them if they're physically weak. The next thing that's said here in verse 14 is be patient with all men. That's hard, isn't it? Patience is a virtue of the Holy Spirit, a mass aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Be patient with all people. There's some people I can be patient with very easily. You know who they are? People who agree with me. Those are the people I'm real patient with. No problem. I can spend all day long with them and never become impatient. It's when we have people who are annoying to us. And by the way, I'll tell you a secret, you're annoying to some other people too, and I am too. We know that. But patient to all men. This would be including people who aren't Christians even. We live in a day where there's great polarization between the secularists and people who are people of faith. There is a wide gulf that separates us from them. We're not to condone their viewpoint on sexuality or on other matters, economic matters. We, we don't have to embrace all those things. It's not because they're Democrats or progressives and we're conservatives or Republicans. It's because what they are espousing really doesn't fit the truth of the Word of God. But we don't have to become their enemies. Those people need to know the Lord. And they're not going to change their thinking until someone cares enough about them to be patient with them who knows Jesus and shares the gospel and is not confrontive, but really reaches out to them in the name of the Lord. We can all do that. I'm not saying we should ever back away from what is true and right. I'm not saying that. Here's, here's another one. 
refuse to retaliate. It says in verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. Let's stop right there. What is your reaction, quick reaction, when you are smacked? What do you do? I'm not talking about literally, sometimes that happens, but I'm talking about verbally or by actions of people. We want to get them back at them, don't we? We do. We want to take matters into our own hands. I was thinking about an event that occurred in my life way long ago. I was a boy, preschooler. It was in the middle of the 1950s. I lived in a neighborhood. No house in the neighborhood had air conditioning. This is Memphis, Tennessee. It's hot there. It's about like it is today. High humidity, about 95 degrees. And the boys in the neighborhood, we all had the same wardrobe. A pair of shorts, and that was all. We just ran while we were learning to become men in that. It was kind of like a jungle setting almost. <laughs> we ran through the clover and we did all kinds of things that boys do. And my next door neighbor, Robert Wilder, got offended by something I did and I probably was rude to him in some way, two years older than I, and I saw he was gonna get me. So I began to run. We were next door neighbors and it was not very far and I ran as fast as my five-year-old legs could take me. I remember getting to the base of the steps, probably about four or five steps to the landing and I went up, didn't trip, looked at the door. The door was open. There was a screen door and then the wood door was open. I ran through and pulled that door back. Do you remember those old doors? They had a hook and you, you had a little deal and you put it in there and I got that securely fastened. And then about that time, Robert Wilder, who was affectionately known as Butch in the neighborhood, that tells you a lot about him. So he's standing there looking at me and I don't know what he's saying, but I said this to him. I said, Butchie boy, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> the fact that he was chasing me was calling me to throw down with him right there, you know? Well, that was taking matters into my own hands, wasn't it? That's a five-year-old. But as a 71-year-old, sometimes I act the same way when it comes to people's offending me. But I've got to leave matters in the Lord's hand. Look at verse 15. Seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. We need to seek out for the best of people in the body. In Philippians, Paul writes these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility, listen carefully, in humility consider others better than yourself. That's the all-inclusive. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's seeking the best, isn't it? I, you, if you know Christ, if we don't want to contribute to the extinguishing of the Spirit's fire, we need to be people who make it a point to seek the best for each other and for all men. Here again, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gets out from under the umbrella of just our body of believers, but to the world. Then this beautiful section, 16 through 18, rejoice always. Paul is a big proponent of this. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, 
And if you didn't get it the first time, he goes on to write, and again I say rejoice. The Apostle Paul was a prisoner at the time of Nero. For all he knew, he was on death row. He couldn't see well. His eye disease was so disfiguring, people had a hard time even looking at him. They'd turn away when they saw him. He was a man who was a prisoner. But he, he describes himself as an ambassador for Christ. I'm in chains for Christ, he said. What a man. So he's not telling people to do something that he himself was unwilling to do. He was his own best illustration. And why not? What does the Bible say about us who know Jesus? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and no one can snatch them out of what? My hand. My Father who is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Whose hand? Father's. Whose hand? Jesus. Whose hand? Father. And then the book of Psalm 16 says this. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We can rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Is this to say that we are to retire and become recluses spiritually? Just hide out somewhere? Never interact with the world? Hardly. We are to pray. The word without ceasing translates, the phrase without ceasing translates one word in the New Testament. It's a word which suggests at every opportunity. When someone comes to your mind, pray for them. Let me mention this quick story. The man was named Hotchkiss. Hotchkiss was a missionary in Africa. He had gone to pick up a long-awaited pith helmet. He was so excited about it when he picked it up at the post office, which was miles away from where he lived. He traveled by foot. He didn't have conveyances back in either the late 1900s, 1800s, or early 1900s. And all of a sudden, it, he, he lost track of time, and he noticed, I was supposed to be at this village that has opened up for me to talk to people about Christ, to preach the gospel. He had a problem, a dilemma. Time was short. He knew that it would be dangerous for him to go across the open country of the savannah that separated the post office from the village he was going to preach the gospel in. But he said, I cannot let these people down. I could not live with myself if my preoccupation with a hat kept me from sharing Christ with people. So he made his way across that area knowing that he had just about enough time to get there a little early if he walked quickly. What he had feared happened. He heard in the distance a thundering and he looked back and he saw dust on the horizon behind him. And the sound became more and more thunderous. And he recognized it was a herd of rhinos. They had been spooked for some reason. He thought, I can't outrun them. So finally he just fell to the ground in a kneeled, kneeling position. And he asked the Lord to please save him. And sure enough, God heard the prayer. The herd passed. He got up. He arrived at his destination on time, preached the gospel. There were people who came to Christ. A year later, he was visiting the United States on furlough in the home of a family who supported him in his ministry financially. And he began to tell the story. And the host said, would you please stop for a moment? 
He said, I've got to get my Bible. He went back into his bedroom, picked his Bible off the bedstand, walked in, opened it, and he said, what day and month did that happen? And the man, Hotchkiss, told the exact day, exact month. And then he said, I was awakened in the middle of the night, and the time difference would have put it at a, virtually the exact time that this occurred. I was urged in my own heart to pray for you, only you. And I prayed until I sensed the freedom of the Lord to say, I've heard your prayer on his behalf. Look, pray without ceasing. When God puts somebody on your heart, you pray for that person. Somebody comes out of the blue, pray for their safety, Pray for their spiritual growth. You'll be on solid ground. And then lastly, in everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. People often ask, what's God's will? Here's one express statement of what His will is. In everything, give thanks. How can we do that? Here's how we can do that. We know the God who loved us enough to send His only begotten Son to die for us. That's the God whom we know. And He is one who loves us so much that He causes all things to work together for good for us who know Him through Jesus Christ. Believe it. It's what Scripture says. God is sovereign. In the writer of Hebrews teaching, this, he, this writer says, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips which give thanks to the Lord. And the word translated thanks really means confess the Lord. Do you know what the primary name, the name that is above every name that Jesus has and has given, been given by the Father? Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look, we don't want to put out the Spirit's fire, do we? may not even even start it in your heart. There's a way for that to start today. If you don't know Jesus, surrender to Christ. Just say, Lord, I'm done with me. I'm done. I want to give you full control. If you know Christ, but you have never developed spiritually, the way to begin is realize the Holy Spirit does live in you, and you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, you are to yield to the Holy Spirit so that you can fulfill your intended purpose to glorify God. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. That means to take control of you and be the one who is the power for living this life. Bow in prayer. Would you take just a minute? We're not going to take long. I'm just going to ask you, Ask the Lord. Ask Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you want from me? Ask Him. Whatever He's told you, surrender that to Him. And probably He said, I want your life. Give your life to Him today. Lord, we thank You for Your Word 
how you, Holy Spirit, use your word to conform your people to your will for your glory. Use this passage, simple passage of Scripture, so that we might become, as individuals and as a church, a church that is filled with your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.